Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to Balagan. And today we're going to discuss, I would say, an explosive topic in Israel, which can shed a light on what is going on in the political sphere and all of the Balagan that we're actually having in Israel. Unlike in the United States, the state of Israel doesn't have a constitution, but a set of 16 basic laws. The idea of constitution was brought in the Declaration of Independence in 1948 and gave a mandate to the founding assembly to form a constitution based upon it, the political formation of Israel will be built. The founding assembly did not fulfill its purpose, and the question of constitution stayed opened until today, 72 years after the establishment of the State of Israel. Our guest today will help us to explain what happened and does Israel even need a constitution and what's the status today and the impact that we're having. Iki Elner, the founder and CEO of the Israeli Leadership Institute in Israel and the Israeli Leadership Institute of America based in Ohio, is a motivational speaker, has a long-lasting public career. Among his past roles, he served as an advisor to the Minister of Education, Professor Amnon Rubinstein, was co-founder of the Freedom of Religion Coalition in Israel and many other initiatives. Iki served as the CEO of Constitution for Israel under Professor Uriel Reichman and is here to enlighten us on what was done in order to form a constitution. So welcome, Iki, and I'm really excited to have you here. Um, you. I must admit, I'm also a graduate of the Israeli Leadership Institute, a proud yes, graduate. Yes, you are, and um, we're very proud of you for being one. I'm really happy to have you here. Thank so, you. Iki, allow me to start with the question. 72 years that the state of Israel exists, why Israel doesn't have a constitution, and do we really need one? Because if you look at democracies around the world, most democracies doesn't even have a constitution. You know, that's such a new, special angle of looking at it by asking, does Israel even need a constitution? Most of people that discuss the matter with me ask me, why is there a problem and how long is it going to be before Israel is going to have a constitution? I actually like this angle, does Israel even need a constitution? So let's talk about countries like Israel and the United States of America, which are very similar as far as where the populations come from all over the world. Yes. People immigrated to Israel and immigrated to the United States of America from so many countries. Now, 
countries that are based on immigrants and a flow of immigrants that never stops. Look, America exists for so many years. And even before the Declaration of Independence, back in 1776, there was an immigration of more than 250 years to America. The immigration to Israel didn't start in 1948 when we declared our independence. It started many years before. Jews started immigrating back to Israel from the diaspora decades before the independence was declared. Now, nations that are based on such flow of immigrants, never stopping, coming from so many parts and ends of the earth, has to have a constitution. It has to have some kind of a social contract, because I like to call it a social contract, between all parts of societies that have their own tradition, have their own mentality, come from different cultures, different languages, different types of democracies, or some of them, not even a democracy they left behind. Could have been a dictatorship, okay? And those people come from such different attitudes towards how does this country operate as a state? And when this happens in the United States and in Israel, there is a must, there is a need for a constitution that will make everybody feel comfortable at home, I call it. You know, in my many years of working and leading the work of Constitution for Israel, which was a grassroots movement, okay? It was a nonprofit that has been able to push forward some of the constitutional, what we call basic laws in Israel, that are today part of the future constitution. When we had our discussions, the language I used was not a constitution. It was a social contract between the citizens. Now, either it is formed in the first few years of the statute, or maybe later, rather at the first few years, but even later, it has to be ratified by whatever it is, whether a Senate or a Congress or a House of Representatives. And from that moment, everybody knows what their duties are and what the benefits and privileges are. And when you come to a country that doesn't have a constitution, number one, you find it hard to find your place in society because you don't really know what is the attitude towards every citizen. What are you allowed to do or not allowed to do? It's not only about daily laws. It's about your being part of this beautiful carpet, I would say, you know, and civil carpet. Now, if people form a constitution in Israel and have it ratified in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament, I know that it will easen some of the tensions that you know very well about and we'll discuss later probably. But I believe that it has such a great benefit for the Israeli society and the Israeli nation And again, based on the American experience, yes, it took about 13 or more years until the final constitution was ratified back at the times of the foundation of the American nation, but it was. And from that moment, nobody could shake or change the face of America because they had more power than other groups. Everybody was equal in the eye of the law. And this is my aspiration for, and my hope and my dream for Israel because it will balance lots of things here. So if we'll go to the beginning, you know, in the Declaration of Independence, it definitely said, you know, that uh, the founding assembly will form some sort of a constitution. Eventually, 1948, 1949, 1950, we have the Yari Compromise formed by a 
former MK Izhar Yari, and he said, for now, we won't have a constitution, but we'll start forming those basic laws that eventually will become the future constitution of Israel. Who was against a constitution at that time and why? Okay, there are a few ways to meet this question. Number one is what was actually the influence, the impact at those days of the RE compromise and why was it taken this way? And the second, who would have opposed it? So here's the deal. At that time, Israel had two populations that had a big problem with forming a constitution, what we would call a democratic and secular constitution. Those were the Arabs as a minority in Israel back then and the ultra-Orthodox. Now, those two groups seemed to be at that time an obstacle to finalizing a constitution. Now, I'm going to say a few things that may not very much flatter Israel, but are the truth. And back to those days, this is how it looked. So on one hand, Zionist hardliners were against forming a constitution because it would have to answer the big question and the challenge, do Arab citizens in Israel receive, accept the same rights as Jews? Now, this was not under some kind of a racist, discriminating thought. That was not the school. The problem was that Israel has just recovered from a very traumatic war of independence. Right. And let me remind everybody, at 48, seven different armies, I'm not talking about the small militias right. and terrorist organizations, seven, seven big states. armies, Arab armies, attacked Israel. Right. Israel didn't understand the Israeli society, and we're talking about what? Israel back at 48, 49? 700, 800,000 people. Yes, it was even, it was 600,000 people, and we lost 1% of our people in 1948. Of the population at the 6, war. 6,000 people died. It was traumatic, and yes. for Israelis to trust the Arabs, whether they live inside Israeli borders or outside the border, outside, was right. a problem. It was a problem of fear, of trauma. It wasn't about racism and discriminating. We, at those days, did not understand how do the Arabs who stayed in Israeli borders and not the ones who left and fled, okay? How do they going to function as citizens? And what is going to be the security situation between us and them? Now, if you form a constitution, ratify it, you're not able to take all the precautions or all the considerations that may occur in the future with any kind of problem of attention between the Jewish population, the Arab population, then you're going to make a big mistake. Now, we didn't think about amendments and so on. It's either a constitution or not, okay? This is one population that for the hardliners, and most Israelis at that time were hardliners, time, yeah. we just recovered from a war that we won. Nobody even believed that we can win that war. Again, as you said, yeah. there were 630,000 Jews in Israel back in '48. Seven big armies attacked us from Arab countries that together constituted more than 50 million people. So, you know, the confusion was there. Those hardliners said, no, not not now. Just to shed a light on what you said about the policies, the Labour Party, Mapai, the original Labour Party, actually placed all of the Arab citizens under a military curfew. Martial law. Martial law until it was 1957, I think. Even, the, even later. Some of the areas were dismissed from martial law only at the mid-60s. 
And the one who opposed the martial law was actually Begin, who was leading Mahal, the revisionist right. party. Right, and he was very much pro-liberal constitution that will respect everyone's rights right. and so on. But he wasn't in any leading position to influence or so. I want to talk now about the other sector of society, the other population that opposed it, and that is the ultra-orthodox. We're talking about a small sector, but very powerful. Why was it powerful? Because Ben-Gurion was about to give the Israeli answer to the partition plan of the United Nation at the time, so that the United Nation will declare or take a resolution to establish two states, Israeli and Arab one. He needed all the Jewish organizations and Jewish movements in Israel and abroad to support his position to go to the United Nation and say, we agree to your plan and let us found and establish our own state. Agudat Israel was a very strong and powerful organization among the diaspora um, Jewish Jewelry. population. And they kind of blackmailed him so that in the future, he will take care of their own interests. Now, they had two interests. Number one, what they called saving the yeshiva world, which they claim, rightfully so, was devastated and completely destroyed during the Holocaust just a few years before 48. So they wanted the yeshiva world to have an opportunity to grow back again in Israel. And the second thing was that the Israeli state will keep a very strong Jewish nature. And when they say Jewish nature, they didn't mean like me and most Israelis, which is some kind of a conservative nature of Judaism with a strong Israeli Jewish identity and understanding what's our region. They wanted a religious, right. a very religious, strong impact on the daily life in Israel. Versus and, the Jewish tradition that right, we're talking right, about. Right, because as you know, and many others who listen to this, Jews in Israel don't have to declare themselves as religious to go to the synagogue in Rosh Hashanah or Yom right. Kippur, or they will put outside the sukkah, not necessarily because they're religious, but because it's part of a tradition. The ultra-Orthodox wanted a full religious control over daily life. Now, they're a minority. They know that they cannot do it. But before the forming of the state, when Ben-Gurion needed their support to come as a representative of the whole Jewish nation, in Israel and outside Israel, to the United Nations and say, yes, we agree to the partition plan, let us have our own state, he was in a position to be blackmailed. Now, I'm using a very hard expression, but it is a blackmail. It's not just a condition. They said, if you're not going to promise us that you will help us build the yeshiva world again by letting yeshiva students the freedom to go to the yeshiva instead of the military. Second, you will give us the right of veto on any legislation in Israel that will go against our religious belief. Now, I'm not saying that his agreement was complete, but he gave them some kind of a yes. Now, Israel is formed in 48. The Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox are minority in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, but their standing, their moral standing is very strong, bigger than their number in the population and the number of seats that they have received in the last election. And they put all the strength and all the power and all the influence to prevent any kind of a move towards the constitution in Israel, by the way, 
we can jump now 72 years after, and even today, the ultra-Orthodox are the greatest obstacle for the constitution in Israel. Even the light Orthodox movement in Israel, which is like the National Religious Party, the NRP, which is called Bait Yehudi, or Yemina, or whatever the name they have in the last 20 years, because yeah. it's been changed, but it's the same population. Even they sort of agree, more of like, to a constitution. Of course, there's going to be a compromise on the religious issues, but the ultra-Orthodox, for them, no, no, no. Now, let's throw in the biggest bomb, the biggest shell in the issue of constitution in Israel. So, the biggest argument against the constitution in Israel by religious people, which attracts also the attention and some kind of support of non-religious but Masorti, traditional people, is that the Torah is our constitution. Now, go find that argument. I mean, I believe in God, but I don't see myself as a religious person. I do not follow all the religious commandments and commitments, but I see myself as a person who believes in God. And most, most Israelis, Israelis are actually like that. I mean, they are not <laughs> observant. Right. They do believe, and they keep the tradition. I mean, I remember as a kid that I used to go and see Apoel games on Shabbat, you know. Right. But we would still go to the Bet Knesset, to Shul, on Friday evening, you know, and doing uh, Kabbalat Shabbat and everything. And that's Look, the I majority. Look, I just left Zerot. I lived in Zerot for 11 years. Zerot is a very conservative and traditional place. People there all fasten on, uh, on, on Yom, Yom Kippur. Kippur. I mean, so and so. But... On Friday, if they do a kiddush with a kippah on their head, they eat a traditional Shabbat meal, and they go out driving with the car, going to clubs or to meet their friends, okay? Most of Israelis will go against any coercion, any religious coercion. However, the biggest question is how do you persuade a Jewish Israeli who lives in Israel, born in Israel like me, whose parents fled the Holocaust or after the Holocaust, from other countries, it doesn't matter. We all come from places where we had to live because there was anti-Semitism. The only thing that kept us together was that so-called constitution, the Jewish constitution, which is the Bible, the Torah. How can I fight this argument? Now I can. I have a few arguments against it, but understand the psychology behind yeah. it. You'll find it very hard to oppose an argument that the Torah is our constitution, if you actually held it for more than 2,000 years as your constitution. Yes, the word constitution was not very internationally known 2,000 years ago, but let me surprise everybody, in America today, it's 2020, the word constitution appears in the Bible more than 2,000 years ago. The word constitution, chukah, appears in the Bible. Right. And actually, in so many times that the leaders of the Jewish nation at the time, of the Israelites, were talking about the Bible and about the laws of God, they called it, these are my constitution. They said in plural, yeah. this is my constitution. Now, go figure out how can you, in a short term of 72 years, try to fight an argument which is implanted psychologically in the minds of Jews whether all around the world or in Israel, doesn't matter. We're talking about Israel now. So I, as one of the leaders of the Constitution for Israel movement, I understand the argument and I understand why should we have a secular constitution. I do understand it. 
but not everybody got into the professional position that I was, that they can argue with it. So if you go and meet an Israeli in the street and you ask him, do you think we should have a constitution? I'm telling you seven or eight out of 10 will say, yes, it's important. Let's have a constitution. Is it necessary that the constitution will be balanced with the Torah? Even if those liberals, they'll say yes, most of them, because they will understand that if comes the collision, we will have to re-identify ourselves. Right. And it's a problem. Do we really want to throw away everything that was in our nature, in our tradition, in our national identity? Do we want to throw it? No, you don't have to throw it. You can find a middle way between our old constitution and a modern constitution. But I'm just explaining to you, the big bomb is not just the old orthodox and the Arab question, because with both of them, there has been some move. The move right. is that there is a majority of Israelis that will vote for a constitution despite orthodox minority objection. And with the Arabs, the relationship today within the Israeli borders with the Arab community are improving from day to day. Yes. There's still many problems, I know, but they're improving. They feel more and more Israelis, and we feel that we can communicate and cooperate with them. So those obstacles are not that important anymore. But the big shell is how do you settle the old constitution and the new one? But do you think that forming a constitution in Israel has to be aligned with separating state and religious? I mean, is it something that is doable in a state like Israel? Absolutely not. But the reason is not the shell that I just threw into the field a minute ago about the old constitution. It's different. The problem of a full separation that is impossible in Israel is the law of return. This is where the explosives are. You see, when I led Constitution for Israel, my part of the Constitution, because as you explained in the beginning, we have basic Constitution laws, which work with the piecemeal method. Every time we'll ratify another piece until we'll have it fully completed, okay? My part in the piecemeal method was the hardest of all. That was the basic constitutional bill of freedom of religious choice. Imagine how powerful was the Constitution for Israel movement that we even dared proposing and introducing a bill of such nature to the Israeli society. Even in that bill, we stated that all religious preferences will be respected. So government offices will not work on Shabbat, okay? In every public facility, kosher nature will be kept, even if you don't go eat in there. Yeah. Just, you know, don't make it non-kosher. So right. there's a respect to everyone. Also, the respect to the Muslim and Christians was there in that bill. So there could be a balance that will allow a full freedom of religious choice in a chapter of the Constitution. That was okay. But we couldn't write in Israel there will be a full separation of state and religion. We could not do it the American way. And the reason we couldn't do it the American way is that Israel is happy to be with a law that is called law of return. Now, the law of return, Chokashvut, is allowing, actually inviting every Jew around the world, even if only your grandpa or grandma were Jewish, to immigrate to Israel and immediately be accepted as full rights yes. citizen in Israel. Immediately. You just came today. You don't even know how to speak Hebrew. There's election tomorrow. You can vote. You get your rights as an Israeli citizen. Now, this law seems to be discriminating in the eyes of 
ultra-liberals because it allows only Jews to immigrate to Israel. Well, I'm not going to get into that argument, but it wasn't meant to discriminate any other nationalities or nations or originals. It was meant to place a mirror against the Nuremberg 1935 laws against the Jews. Okay, now, once you have the law of return and the heart of it says that you can immigrate to Israel, if you are proven to be a Jew, forget about it. If you have to prove that you're a Jew, it's either by being a Jew in your customs and your traditions, or you can prove that your grandma or grandfather were Jews. Now, if we will ratify a constitution that has a full separation of state religion in Israel, that constitution, which is an upper level of legislation, will have to cancel the law of return. Now the question is whether it's time to cancel and dismiss the law of return. Some say yes, because most Jews who wanted to immigrate to Israel already Already had a chance for 72 years. But I have a small point here, which is the only reason why I want the law of return to stay as it is. And I don't care if people will call me racist or say that I'm discriminating anyone else. Everybody who knows me, this is not my point of view and this is not my philosophy in life. However, I believe that anti-Semitism can still rise in many places. Where? It's alive and kicking. In Missouri. Yeah. In Minnesota. In Florida. In New Jersey. They shot into that mini market or delicatessen in New Jersey. In Pittsburgh a year ago. In Pittsburgh. They shot into the synagogue. What are we talking about? I'm not fantasizing now. I know there's lots of Jews in America. They think that that's not going to happen. They think that they will identify more and more with the secular nature of America. They can overlook those problems and say it doesn't really happen. Well, it will happen. I'm sorry to say so. It happens in France. It happens in England in so many places. It happens now in America. It happens in the Ukraine. I see the Israeli responsibility, as far as the law of return, to keep it so that the Jews can pack their suitcases when the time comes because of anti-Semitism, riots, or any discrimination or whatever that will make them decide that they have to immigrate to Israel. As long as you have the law of return, there will never be a full separation of state and religion in Israel. Okay, well, the issue of the law of return is fascinating as itself because you're suggesting to the fact that the whole concept of the law of return was to keep Israel open as a safe haven for world Jewry in right. case of an emergency. And I can totally relate with that. And it's a whole different story, but I love that you brought it up. But I want to go back to our story of the Constitution. Yes. So if you're saying that this is a major obstacle for a constitution, okay, and the ultra-Orthodox also object to the constitution, and now we're seeing that we have those 16 basic laws that are actually flawless. Some of them can be changed. We just saw it a couple of months ago when they changed the basic law of the government in order to form a new coalition right. with an alternate uh, prime minister and all Absolutely of that. Absolutely ridiculous. I apologize in the name of the Israeli people to the rest of the world. We, we are so, more serious than this. Okay, go on, sorry. The people are more serious than the politicians. Right. Absolutely. Um, so if those basic laws are actually quite flawless, what can be done in order to make the Israeli political system more solid and more structured, I would say, and to empower it? Because at the moment, it seems 
that the government, because of its formation and because of the need of the coalition, it's actually, I would say, enforcing the Knesset to legislate against the Knesset's own interest right. as the legislative branch and as the supervising branch over the government. Right. You know, in the 90s, you were the CEO of Chukali Israel. And Chukali Israel, Constitution for Israel, it started from actually a proposal for a constitution, right, that uh, Professor Uriel Reichman Academic was... Academic proposal that was formed in Tel Aviv University by many professors and headed by Uriel Reichman, yes. So they had a lot of offers. How to strengthen the political system? Can you shed some light on that? And what was the biggest obstacles that you guys met when you were trying to promote those basic laws? Because you did have some successes at the yes. beginning of the 90s. Right. You know, with a couple of important basic laws that were uh, legislated under the Rabin's administration, if I remember and also, correctly. also under Shamir, Dan Meridor, as a minister of justice, he actually ratified the most important part of the constitution, which is the Bill of Rights in three major constitutional bills that he was in charge of, and that was a big boost to the constitution move. So let me tell you something personal, first of all. I am not in love with anything I do in life. I'm willing to criticize myself and understand that some of the moves were mistakes. I now understand that the mistake of Constitution for Israel as a movement, with all the sympathy and support of the majority of Israelis, we checked ourselves every month. In all polls and surveys, there was a majority supporting our movement and our demands. However, I now feel that had we just focused on the structure of the government, on the constitutional part, which is the government of Israel, or the legislative and active bodies of Israel, okay? Yeah. If we focused only on this, it would have been better and not mix it with other basic laws and constitutional bills like freedom of religious choice and others that were presented together by our own movement. This was our mistake. Now, was it a mistake from the beginning? No. But at one point, we should have understood. And that is the problem with the Israeli governing laws or the government's laws. Because they were attached also to freedom of religious, freedom of movement, blah, 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 other bills, which are very important constitutionally, we should have taken care of balancing and restructuring the Israeli governmental system. We did not do it. Yes, we did move into the direct election bill, which in a few election campaigns, you could vote directly to the prime minister, just like an American system. You can vote directly to the president, and then you vote to your representatives, whether it's right. the Senate or the House. So we managed, it wasn't my term, it was before me, but it was my movement that presented it. And you could vote for Rabin or Bibi Netanyahu or Ariel Sharon directly into the Knesset. But then because we messed it up with other bills, yeah. we couldn't form a stable and constant and active majority in the Knesset to finalize the electoral reforms that were supposed to be ratified within the constitutional bill of the government. This was our historic problem. Now, I think that today, if there will be a new movement that will work only on this part, okay? There is a movement that is called a movement for a new government. It's a new movement and it wants to deal only with making sure that there is a balance between the courts in Israel, the Knesset in Israel, and the government. 
those three bodies are colliding all the time. And there's always one of them with their upper hand. And it shouldn't be like this. It should be like in America. There should be a balance. If we will focus today, not on the big constitutional dream, but we will first of all make sure that the Knesset is elected according to a system that makes it stabilized, allows it to serve four full years. If you check the Israeli history, never had the Israeli House of Representatives parliament never served a full term of four years. Can you even imagine something like this in America? I mean, America can go through a war, whatever disaster, whatever happens, elections are every four years or two years, yeah. you know, it depends. It's six yeah, years for the Senate Congress or the Senate. I know, or... but I'm saying the president serves four years and two terms. That's it. Right. In Israel, go in the history all the way back 72 years ago, never. So I believe that if we will be able in the next two years, I will be involved in this. I will not lead it, but I will be involved in helping to form this big movement. I believe that most Israelis today are ready and willing to support it. And if we will finalize a constitutional bill that will make sure that the government is elected in such and such way, the Knesset is functioning in such and such way, there will be checks and balances as we need in Israel and as they are existing in America, then I believe that the road to a full constitution will be paved immediately. But this is where we stop. And because the government in Israel has developed such animosity in the people's hearts and minds in the last year because of never-ending election campaigns. We had three election campaigns in just a year, even yes. not a year, less than a year. Less than a year. Even in the 11 months. Even Netanyahu today say he's crazy. We can't go on like this. The other party, which is with him in the government, has no say. Israelis are fed up with the electoral system. I believe that when the crisis comes, new opportunities rise. And we can use that opportunity and restructure the government. And then we'll have another talk in a couple of years. There will be a ratified constitution in Israel. I just want to ask you one more question, because unfortunately, our time is running out. Yes. When you see the government's acts trying to minimize the rights of demonstrators and the Supreme Court's power, do you see any threat of declining of the Israeli democracy? No, not at all. First of all, you're asking someone who is very sensitive to this question. Right. Because of my old history with Constitution for Israel movement, and yeah. because I served under two ministers, I know the government from inside. I served at top positions with two very important leaders right. in Israel in the past. Second, my time in Constitution for Israel has offered me a great insight of the democratic procedure in Israel. I'm not afraid, yes. I think we should all be cautious and look at it very carefully. But I don't think that there's anything that constitutes a threat to the Israeli democracy. And I'll tell you why. Israelis have a spirit of free people. Now, when we have a crisis, everybody is willing to sacrifice a little bit. So people see that minimizing the right of demonstration, people see it as a little sacrifice because we are under the COVID-19 situation. Again, Israelis, when wars occur, we always are willing to sacrifice a little bit. And the curfews, we stay at home, there's a lockdown, blah, blah. People accept it. But the Israeli spirit is a spirit of free people. And they will not allow the democracy in Israel to be hurt seriously. There are a few compromises 
but they're temporal and everything's going to be fine. They're not going to be permanent. And as some people in Israel are worried about this, I feel that me and the majority of Israelis understand that this is only a phase in our lives and it's only because of COVID-19 and Israel will never allow a dictatorship. We're too much in love with our democracy. <laughs> Everybody will try to compromise it seriously. We'll knock them down. Israelis are definitely in love with arguments. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So they will not allow banning the right to argue. <laughs> Absolutely. No dictator will last in Israel because everybody's going to argue with him. Iki, unfortunately, our time is really running up. And, uh, I enjoy very much. Thank you. I really want to thank you for enlightening us today. And it's definitely going to be the first of our recordings. We're going to continue and I would like to have you in other episodes discussing policies and what's return. going on in Israel. Whenever you call me, I'll so, be there. No worries. So thank you very much for joining us today. And I want to thank our audience also for listening. Stay safe, stay well, and looking forward uh, for our next episode of Balagan. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.